0: This is the Play to Win podcast from Aconite Books, with me, James Wallace. This first series of the podcast accompanies my new book, Everybody Wins, Four Decades of the Greatest Board Games Ever Made, out now in the UK and coming to the US, Canada and Australia in Spring 2023. Hello, and thank you for joining me for Episode 6 of Everybody Wins, the podcast the friend and constant companion to the book everybody wins four decades of the greatest games ever made by me james wallace in the previous five episodes we've covered the five decades or the five ages uh, that constitute what can fairly be described as the growth of modern board games the rise or the renaissance in game design that has brought us to where we are today now that we've finished the chronological run through i wanted to take the opportunity to survey the whole time frame to see if we could draw any conclusions from it, as well as looking into the past and forward to the future, with the aid of a few learned friends. So for this final episode, I'm joined by three diverse experts in, in their own field, Chris Eggert, Tim Harford, and Holly Nielsen. Um, can I ask you each to to introduce yourselves? Uh, Tim, first.
1: With pleasure. My name's Tim Harford. I am a writer I am presenter of more or less on Radio Four and the Cautionary Tales podcast, and uh, I'm a keen board gamer and role playing gamer.
2: Chris, uh, so I'm I'm Chris John Eggett. I'm the editor of Tabletop Gaming Magazine, uh, which is a monthly print magazine all about board games, card games, uh, role playing games, and covers sort of the sort of the intersection of uh, culture and consumer in the sense of uh, we tell you if it's good, and then we also tell you um, why uh, you should care. (laughs) Uh, Holly.
3: Uh, Hi, so I'm Holly Nielsen. I'm a social and cultural historian of play and games, uh, specialising in British history. I'm also a writer, writing a lot about play and games, and also writing for games as a narrative designer and video games.
0: Fantastic. So, Tim, to start with you, a lot of what you do is around educating the public and the listeners of Radio 4 about uh, economics and the way that money works and the underlying principles of all that. Um, do games have... What role do games have in, in teaching people?
1: I guess it rather depends on, on the game. Uh, one, of, one of my favourite episodes of Cautionary Tales was was all about the invention of Monopoly, which, as you may well know, was originally designed to educate people about the evils of capitalism, but it sort of backfired. And in an ironic twist, the Lizzie McGee, the creator of the game, was, was subject to the evils of capitalism. The game was stolen from her and it, and it became the smash hit we know today. Um, if you look instead at uh, a game uh, such as Settlers of Catan, that teaches you uh, about the importance of scarcity and the importance of trading, and the fact that you need to work together with other people, even though in the end you're going to try to beat them. So it very much depends on the game.
0: So kind of the um, so there's there's avert education as Lizzie McGee was trying to do, and of course Monopoly came with two sets of rules. There was the cooperative version where all the profits went out to, were shared equally, the nice happy version. And then the cutthroat capitalist version, which it turned out everyone preferred. Yeah. Um, and then the more kind of the the lower level stuff, the kind of the social behaviours, the the how to cooperate, the how to negotiate, um, diplomacy as a, a game, arguably about teaching people about d- how to be diplomats or, or how not. Holly, historically, um, what what have, what's the role of games been? Um, is it is it educational, or how much of it is
3: educational? So I think. The question in terms of play and board games being educational is a very interesting one because I think there is an element of it coming from, I guess, a kind of Rousseau enlightenment kind of early romantic idea of education through play and, you know, kind of what is childhood and what is education and all these kind of very high concept ideas, but was then taken on in the kind of early 19th century by... Um, particularly non-conformist Quaker Methodist uh, printers uh, to create board games as part of kind of educational paraphernalia. And so I think there's this, so I think the idea of of play and education is kind of so, it's so wrapped up in that. And I don't think we've ever really got past that. In some sense, we're still, it was very much part of that kind of um, Victorian middle-class evangelical movement of well play has to have a purpose you know you can't just have play for play's sake it has to have you know it has to be improving or it has to be bettering and it cannot be close to gambling you know we don't want anything to do with gambling that's what the upper and lower classes do and we're middle class and we're you know and so there's kind of all these kind of class identities at least particularly in british and american history kind of wrapped up into these ideas of play and games and things like that but there is but it I mean, there are plenty of examples. I mean, I've at least historically, I've seen some terrible examples of, <laughs> of educational games where it's basically just you know this long-winded booklet where you went to the game is basically played at you, and the poor child has to sit there while they learn about British imperial history and how wonderful and how great everything is. Yes, um, neither
1: educational nor a game.
3: No, <laughs> it's it's just yeah, it's I know maybe I'm wrong, maybe maybe children of the day loved it, and I'm being very judgmental. Um, But, uh, but there is, I think what Tim was saying, there is something um, that is very useful with games is that they can teach systems in a way that uh, a lot of other mediums can struggle with. So I think particularly as a historian, I see a bit in, um, you know, as historians, we kind of push back against this idea that history is a linear narrative and we, you know, and we kind of bristle at that idea and yet we choose to display our research in the form of a linear narrative, <laughs> you know, so perhaps the medium does not match the message. And so actually kind of exploring these nonlinear narratives, exploring kind of the systems that games uh, can show us can be a very educational and an, yeah, an interesting way of doing it.
0: Yeah. Something I, I bang on about far too much is that games are the one true interactive art form there are no other interactive i mean truly interactive Ooh, art forms. i'm
3: feeling some theater historians that have a bristling at that
0: <laughs> panto, i would give you panto panto <laughs> is an interactive is true interactive drama but nothing that the audience do is actually going to change the course of, of of it whereas games changing the course of what's going on is is the whole point but it's interesting that you mentioned the imperialist history stuff because this is something that some games have been accused of and tim you mentioned Settlers of Catan, which one thinks you think of settlers, and you think of this this almost abstract board and tribes identified only by the color of their pieces. You think, well, where's the imperialism? And then you remember the bandit, the bandit who starts in the desert because presumably has been the the indigenous settlers, the the indigenous inhabitants starting off have been forced into the desert by the uh, settlers, and uh, and now can only survive. By raiding them and stealing their their resources, and a number of other games have, have run Puerto into Puerto
1: Rico, one of, I mean, in my humble opinion, one of the greatest games ever made, uh, which I, in the English translation I have, has lots and lots of brown counters who I think uh, I think they're described as colonists. I think working working on the sugar, colonists, colonists. The brown, the brown people working on the sugar plantations of Puerto Rico, and I, I understand in the original German version they are just called slaves, uh, which, which of course is historically rather more accurate. And which of these terms is more appropriate? And indeed, whether you should have what is really a fun game hinged around this theme. I mean, it, you know, it could have been about, you know, it could have been about colonizing Mars instead. There's no reason why you had to have these. You know these exploited workers as part of the game, but i I, I don't know uh, this is something we need to wrestle with yes,
0: I, I believe they're they're reskinning Puerto Rico now to move it i uh, I think about a hundred years forwards in the in the island's history to a period where it was independent, and it was it'll be the, the gameplay will be unchanged. It's just the name of the pieces, and their role within the the players' minds is being slightly updated to something um less less potentially controversial. Chris, this is something that the the games industry has had to come contend with, really, just in the in the last few years. What its games are, are, are saying? How is how is how are things changing?
2: Well, I think um, I think just to come back to the idea of it being an interactive medium, and the, the as you say, the true interactive medium, uh, bar panto. Um, uh, <laughs> that um, it's actually an opportunity as well. So, for example, in particularly. Uh, examples like um, Puerto Rican and things like that. Yes, it is kind of kind of problematic and you do, it becomes very reductive, you know, ultimately we're abstracting things to a point of having value and then you introduce a history and you're suddenly in a very, very kind of like dangerous, mucky place that you probably don't want to have on your you know, dining room table. Um, but there is an opportunity as well. So you see games like Spirit Island, for example, it uses its components in a really interesting way. Like Spirit Island is a game about um, you play as the spirits of an island that's being taken over by colonialists. Um, the colonialist pieces are these stark, horrible, white um, little, uh, um, well, colonialists uh, of, of the, of the uh, seafaring period. Um, and their their houses are these little um, horrible white things as well. And, you're spending your whole time sending them away, you know, and the native tribes, which cannot be replenished during the game, you know are these lovely pieces of wood, but you can but you have this opportunity in games to um use tactile elements like that to um send these messages and when you see something like spirit Island um to give you a, a positive message or something interesting to explore like that, then you look at Puerto Rico with even worse you know <laughs> opinions because suddenly. Um suddenly it's like this could have been this could have been done to prevail uh, to show something positive instead you know um but in general we we do have a problem in the industry i think of of that abstraction and losing sight of um how it how we portray people as something that affects real people you know um and i think especially anything historical has the um and holly probably. Recognizes this um, uh, is apparently is you know it's the time machine get out clause. It's like um, well, no one no one from that period can sue me directly, right? You know, um, so, uh, so yeah, I think I think there's a uh, there's a big problem with it, but I think we're we're all attempting to move move past it. Uh, I think it's inherent though in um, particularly Euro games where it's very mechanically heavy. Where that's where the focus is, where that's what you want to think about. You want to think about your um, your exchanges, your trades, and your tactics in that way um, that you end up with this sort of like dirty abstraction, you know, that we don't want. Tim, you've written about games for, I, I believe, the
0: Financial Times and the Economist and, and places like that. Is is society's attitude to to games changing? Has it changed from what Hollywood was saying that game
1: play needs to have a purpose? Well, it seems to be. I mean the games are getting better and they're getting more popular. I was quite struck when when I wrote about a, a big piece about the board game industry for the FT uh 2009. Uh I went out to Essen to to the big board games um convention and and one of the things I was trying to figure out then was why Germany why had Germany been such a board game powerhouse and and it appears to be that the Germans were just as interested in in improving play, uh, improving as in uh, self-improving rather than as in more fun. Uh, and that, that was a post-war thing, 1950s, 1960s, You know, board games sustain the family and a sense of community and et cetera, et cetera. So this seems to have been, it, it's not just the British who were obsessed with this. But the other thing that interested me was um, how would board games respond to the internet age? And the question I kept asking everybody was, well, I, aren't computer games going to destroy this sooner or later? And the response was, well, no, I don't think so, and not yet, for various reasons. But one of, one of the reasons is that the, the internet has been very good for spreading the word about games. You can find people to play games with. Now, of course, you can play games online, play board games online, um, but, but simply sites such as Board Game Geek, which will tell you what the best games are and and, and, and why they're the best games, it just, it just raises the quality of the games available. Now, you imagine a, a book industry where there were no book reviews and where people were embarrassed to discuss the fact that they read books uh, and a lot of people hadn't read a book for 20 years and, and viewed books as things that only, only kids under the age of 10 actually engaged with. How good would the books be they'd they'd be terrible, and therefore the whole thing becomes self fulfilling and and what happened in Germany and has spread to the anglosphere has been a culture of appreciating a quality game, writing reviews, meeting other people, not being embarrassed to get out a board game with friends or even with with acquaintances and and that's just fed a culture where you know we we just love. We just love the games a lot more than we used to, and and they deserve to be loved because they're a lot better than they used to be.
0: Yes, I, I love the idea of only reading one book once a year, and it's always the same book, and it ends in a ends in a massive argument.
1: Yeah, it is. It, it's it's incredibly interminable, and uh, and it, you're actually reading it wrong. Um, <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs> yes, yes.
2: I I I love this particularly because of the idea of the cupboard you keep your books in. That you only look at once a year after christmas dinner um, because you should you should play a board game because yeah, it's christmas we, we all or something get like, yeah, we read all get the book out yes we'll get the book out <laughs> oh i think it's missing some pages oh no. <laughs> so
0: Holly, on on a, on a social level, does does this ring true to to your understanding? I mean, your expertise. You just you told me once you believe you're the the greatest living expert on Edwardian snakes and ladders boards.
3: <laughs> I mean, I don't even know if that's true. I feel like I've just seen more than any person should ever have to see in their life. I've seen more ludo boards and snakes and ladders boards than anybody should ever <laughs> see. I'm sure there are the, the thing with um.
1: No, Holly, on no, sorry, sorry to interrupt because I'm I'm now incredibly curious. Are they all the same but with different art? Or is this, the underlying structure of the stakes and lattice boards different?
3: Um... Oh, well, I'll try and keep my answer short because it's an interesting history, as, <laughs> as every historian is going to say, but both Ludo and Snakes and Ladders um, kind of uh, are both originally from India um, and East Asia in different forms. I'm, I'm, this is a word, words I've only read and I'm probably going to butcher them. And I'm sorry for anybody listening, but um, uh, Snakes and Ladders comes from um, a game called Janshapa, um, in, uh, in India, which is kind of um, a karmic meditation of uh of uh, reincarnation and 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 that and it's kind of maybe not as we would understand a game to be, but it was brought over through kind of um, British Empire and um, imperial families and um, uh, people at the time interested in uh, you know anthropology under the guise of you know colonialism um, and all of that and uh, and so Ludo as well is it's a simplified version of Pachisi. Um, a much much older game going back you know centuries uh, but you had the bizarre thing where in advertisements and kind of edwardian um british newspapers you had you know the you know the new exotic game of Pachisi and the classic British game of Ludo, despite the fact that they are the same game, apart from Ludo being <laughs> being much more simplified and much more recent than Pachisi. But that is how you know it. Kind of uh, these games kind of got rebranded as kind of British staples, losing all their connection very quickly to their original purposes. Um, sorry, this is a very long-winded answer, um, but uh, so. They're all that they kind of always been roll and move. Uh the the, you know, chance based games. Um, some of the earlier versions of Snakes and Ladders look a little bit different. Um, called things like Kismet and stuff like that, where the board is much more circular rather than square, um, you know, little squares spaces on it. Um
0: But then there are so sorry to jump in with Snakes and Ladders, but there's there's also a period, and I think largely Edwardian where it's a moral game for teaching moral lessons to small children. Yeah, it starts uh, where you, as you, a... You know, bottom of the ladder is, you know, can you do, here's an opportunity to do a good deed, and the top of the ladder shows the results of doing a good deed. And the snakes are the, do you give into temptation? Oh, dear, you slide down the snake. And-
3: yeah, it kind of starts as a... It, it kind of becomes more of a kind of... Not even, uh, Christian. it becomes a kind of vague humanist moral tales for children of like, if you don't listen to your mother, then, you know, really weird ones. I saw my favorite one I've seen, which is um, uh, kind to birds makes you go up and you become friends with the birds. And then, you know, bad to animals is is a depiction of a small child being attacked by a flock of birds, (laughs) which is, you know, a universal, (laughs) a universal uh, lesson we all must learn as children. Um, but that actually was it's one of the 10 commandments
1: isn't it be kind to birds I think
3: yeah so it kind of interestingly isn't as religious as you think it's more of a kind of vague humanist idea of morals and then those start to get lost as well and it becomes much more simplified and it is just I think that's changes in printing culture and changes in the idea of well who are you going to be playing this and actually kind of board games were often a a kind of a way of keeping children quiet and occupied, and it's like, yeah, you know, play that, and it doesn't have to have these, you know, moral things. It is just the pure mechanics of it will keep the children occupied. Yes,
0: uh, and then the and then the Americans remove the very last vestige of, of danger from it. They take the snakes out and replace them with shoots and you know slides. So it's it's now just a game of kind of running around a playground. all the all the cultural weight of of the Indian original has just gone. Um, yeah,
3: because you do get the early depictions of snakes and ladders, you do get kind of Orientalist motifs that would have been very familiar to people at the time in advertising and things like that, where it's, you know, snake charmers and very kind of Orientalist slash, you know, racist depictions of, of um, uh, you know, India and, and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, those get lost as well um, fairly quickly. And that's why it then becomes, you know, the kind of the great british staple game you know it loses all. that's basically what britain was doing at the time was taking you know kind of classic games from asia and then rebranding them as the great british game and just simplifying <laughs> them and making them far worse
0: yes there is there is one actually that goes the other way there is there's chinese checkers which is yes. neither chinese nor checkers yeah but uh, but he's still in print today it, yeah yeah
3: and there's this yeah the weird thing you get of people um of of that, yeah. There was there's this there's this the time period which is uh, really interesting, where there's kind of this huge orientalist connection to board games, and there's you know kind of people are trying to justify, oh well, of course I was in you know China, or I was in you know kind of this, and I learned it from the. And there's this idea of a kind of fake sense of authenticity that's just a kind of thin layer of orientalism over <laughs> kind of imperial culture. It's all very, uh, yes, very strange.
0: Yeah. No, um- Chris, uh, it occurs to me that there is a trend in modern board games of giving things Japanese names or a kind of a, a spurious Japanese heritage. From Takedo to of, uh, Takenado, um, uh, Hanabi, and Antoine Bowser does a surprising number of games with Japanese names, and essentially they're abstract games. But is this something? Is it widespread? i mean i I, th- on?
2: I think yes, i think it is yeah um there's there's something you know uh undeniably cool about a samurai sword um <laughs> pandas are very cute um there's all these sort of n- bits of um national and uh iconography um uh, of of japan and 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 yeah the far east with quen marks there. um and uh that are all very appealing um still to to board gamers, i think because um it still retains that sense of um strangeness to most western audiences um who are by majority white um and it and with and with that um comes sort of uh occasional missteps occasional missteps um but i think um the anton Bowser story is in fact that um he went on a school trip to japan. I believe. Um, and uh, Takenoko is a, a, a game about um, growing bamboo for pandas, uh, or a panda, one hungry panda. Um, uh, it's a lovely family family game. Um, he basically invented that game in his head years later from having gone on the school trip and just, just seeing the statues of, because they didn't go in the zoo, Statues outside the zoo of the pandas, and that was it. That was the 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 one tiny thing uh, in his life, apparently that that um uh drew out, her, drew out. Her. Um, but yes, I think I think um that sort of appropriation of of Japanese culture is very um like widespread in gaming generally as well. I think because of the sort of natural um, to and fro of, for example, the early. Uh, digital consoles you know with the way japan led the way with that you do have this sort of very high regard for um games that come from japan particularly you know um and i think a lot of people who are making games now still probably feel a little bit of that feel they lo- like that feeling of um seeing the strange things that you could get abroad more or less you know um which is which was much more strongly felt than for example um americans just getting the films before we did you know uh which is the other the other direction um but whether it's harmful or not I don't know actually um I think for the most part it's harmless and well-meaning um but uh, I'm sure there is a subset of uh slightly (laughs) slightly dodgy things here
3: you know there are people who can speak to this far more eloquently than I can um I think there's a there's perhaps an argument to be made by a continuing kind of orientalist othering by use of kind of um by those kind of motifs but again there are there will be people far more <laughs> more uh, eloquent on this matter than me so i th- i think there is definitely an interesting discussion to be had and for me it's really interesting hearing that because it's it echoes a lot of what i've seen in the in the history wise you know, that happened a kind of a century or two ago so yeah
1: it i think it's interesting to me that most board games are are basically abstract uh by contrast with role-playing games which are you know much more gnarly and much more interested in feelings and emotions and there's a lot of stuff that goes on in a role-playing game that isn't in the rules it's not part of the rules it's never in that's you know that's just not how role-playing games work or they're not how they work at their best whereas with a board game you're you're just trying to figure out what skin to put over the board game. So Otsuro, apparently, I, I think is, was originally released, I, I, you will all know this better than I do, but I think was originally released with another name and another theme, and it didn't really do very well. And then they said, well, let's just make it japanese and kind of, you know, the the tiger and the dragon or whatever, and, and off you go. And But it's a, it's a completely abstract game, and many of these games are abstract. I mean, there are, I suppose, if you were to, if you look at a war game, like Memoir Forty Four, uh, it's that's you know designed to provide some kind of simulation of some kind of war. Clearly, you could turn it into a medieval war game. I suspect uh, without without much of a difference. Um, but if you think about uh, or, or you think about Monopoly, I mean that fundamentally clearly an economics game somehow. But the details, I mean, Monopoly is reskinned. You know, I can buy the Oxford Monopoly. You can buy the Disneyland Monopoly. You can buy Monopoly from all these different places. It, it is intriguing that these things that we're, you know, we're worried about, we're observing, the cultural appro- appropriation or the insensitivity or what, whatever, is none of it is fundamental to the game at all. Whereas if you said, look, we're going to do a role-playing game and you're going to be, um, you're going to be enslaved people, or... Possibly more interesting and more challenging. We're going to do a role-playing game, and you're actually going to be slavers. Where, we, how do you how do you feel about that? Or you're going to be plantation owners? There, you're really getting exploring challenging ideas that really could be educational, but that would be fundamental to the way the game worked in a way that you know none of this stuff actually matters for a good board game.
2: So there is, um, if I may, drop a example here. There's a, there's again a role-playing game called um, Zhangxi, uh, which is um, about running a, um, Chinese restaurant in San Francisco in the 1920s. And you play members of the family, um, and you, and not only are you dealing with racism and all, all of the things you'd expect to deal with, um, in Chinatown in the 1920s in San Francisco, uh, you also have a ghost problem, um, which is going to attempt to, um, sort of, uh kind of try and shut down your restaurant cause strife between family members give you bad dreams and that sort of thing um and that is an incredibly as a as a white person it's an incredibly uncomfortable thing to try and pitch to people and try and get people to play because it is you you are it's, the game kind of is asking you to do a kind of uh, yellow face thing almost it's not it's not but you feel like that because of the context that you're often surrounded by with these things you know um and we I found that very challenging. I pitched that to my, my um my partner's um half uh, half Thai Chinese. So um I pitched that to her and her brother. We'd all try and play that together. And we all sort of looked at it and went, you know what? This is too complicated actually. <laughs> socially, you know, historically, everything. It's just too complicated for any of us to, to slip into those roles. But um uh, they did ask for it made us think very hard about it, as Tim says. that those ideas are um uh incredibly intriguing um but i think it's i think that's part of why one of the reactions to i don't want to offend anyone in my um my board game about um samurai's trading rice or whatever um or other materials uh i don't want to offend anyone that so instead of that doing that what i will do is i will create a fantasy world instead and do a fantasy skin on top which only comes with entirely all the baggage that every fantasy you know um uh product has over the last you know uh, 70 years or so
3: yeah i think um things like that it's uh it's interesting and i feel like i mean if, if somebody else probably knows better than me but the proportion of how white the actual industry is and the people producing the games and so the abstraction you're talking about particularly um uh in regards to you know kind of board games being it's like well you know it's kind of I guess it's the game and then we put a skin on top of it and I think a lot of the kind of issues that we see um happens a lot so you mentioned monopoly and the thing I always remember is you know this. God knows how many Monopoly versions there are now, but I remember seeing an English Heritage Monopoly board and I just remember thinking, wow, that's a confusing mixture of message and gameplay there. You know, you're buying Stonehenge? I don't Well, like, again, maybe that is very appropriate. Um, but I think that's where a lot of the actual mechanics of these games and stuff that perhaps are now kind of so ingrained in game design and things like that are actually... Very capitalist, and they're very, you know, they they have like a lot of these roots to them, and so when we try and put different skins on top of them, it can be a little bit jarring sometimes because it's like wait, actually the you know the message it's trying to come across here does not work in terms of the you know the medium and the message are, are off kilter here, and so that kind of reskinning can be difficult, I think, because just the very fundamentals of a lot of how game design has been developed is through a very Capitalist, you know, competitive, you know, all these kind of lenses that are are just kind of given now. Um, but, Tim, yeah. if,
0: if I can jump in, Tim, you're you're the economist. Are we all the children of Elizabeth McGee? Is, is there an inherently capitalist undertone to a lot of of the way that games work? Is it resource resource management, resource accrual, these things that satisfy us within a game's winning conditions?
1: Well, of course, the irony is that uh, real capitalism is not about winning um i mean with with the exception of a a, a few notable billionaires it's without without meaning to romanticize it or 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 smooth over all the problems i mean capitalism when it works it's it's all about producing something that people value and getting them to give you money for it because they value what it is Uh, and there are lots and lots of opportunities for win-win in a capitalist economy Uh, It doesn't always work like that, but that's how ideally it should work. There are not many win-win board games. As as I mentioned earlier, Settlers of Catan does have that opportunity. It's very clever in the way that Monopoly doesn't really manage to do this uh, in principle. Um, You're supposed to trade in Monopoly, but in practice, people don't trade a lot, but people trade all the time in Settlers because it creates these mini win-win scenarios where both of you are better off for having traded and you stiff the other two players. But ultimately, most board games are, at least on paper, win lose. They're all zero sum. You get one winner, everyone else loses. Of course, the bigger game is you got together, you had fun, you know, you had a good time together, and you know, everyone's a winner really because you had a nice afternoon. But, but there is that that difference. Um, and in fact, even even in a military game, you would say, well, at least a, a war is zero sum. But actually, wars aren't zero sum either. Look, wars can be uh, a negative sum, and they can be cat- catastrophic negative sum, or they can be just be slightly negative sum, depending on how many people get killed in the war. So there, there is coming back to that abstraction. There is always that artificiality about the board game, which you don't get in real life. And, and again, role-playing games can be more realistic in, in that respect. Think they can go deeper. I mean, I know this is a board game podcast, James, but I know we we all love a good role-playing game as well, don't we?
0: We, we do. We, <laughs> I, I think we do. I hope we do, anyway. Um, and the boundaries are definitely blurring at the moment. I, I mean, Chris, there are so many games that are essentially attempting to replicate the role-playing experience on a board, and I'm thinking particularly of Gloomhaven, a, a game that, quite apart from its cost, literally weighs 10 kilos in its basic form. But it's essentially old-school Dungeons Dragons, or something very like it, on, on a board with that kind of... Structure, And at the same time with new mechanics like cooperation, cooperative mechanics and episode five, I talked to Matt Leacock, uh, the king of cooperative games, um, and, and about how, how those work and, and their rising importance over the last 20 years or so. Um, do you think we're, we're looking at, at future games being less abstract, more about feeling like we're actually inhabiting a, a world and, and it's not so much about the
2: winning the game being the, the end of it? I think that's right. um, Ultimately, um, I think there is there's a few different drives that designers are going for at the moment. Um, But one of them is definitely, what if we made a board game a film, more or less? You know, what if we made it an immersive um, experience, which is akin to reading a book or or something like that, and uh, also has this sort of grand sense of scale, that blurring of lines between role playing games and board games um, is really about, it's less about blurring those lines. It's more like bringing people who wouldn't go anywhere near a role-playing game because they think it's a scary uh, prospect to be um, thrust into a room of other people's imaginations. Um, and instead giving you the tools to tell stories, at the, the gaming table uh, in a way that is, you know, uh, sort of fed to you nicely in a easy Easy to consume kind of way. So, despite Gloomhaven being what it is, this huge thing, um, uh, it's it's really about making it easy for you to have a big experience. You know, um, it's about being grand and things like that. Um, but that's only—I think—that's only one direction that um, board games are going.
1: Although, if I can, if I can get slightly cynical at this point, this, uh, economists are allowed to be cynical. I think I I would have thought that part of the attraction for designers. For a game like Gloomhaven, which I, I'm not—I confess I've not played Gloomhaven—but I don't really understand why. We, why would you do that when you could just play Dungeons and Dragons? I, I mean, I don't get it. And there, are, and there are better role-playing games out there than Dungeons and Dragons too. But um, from the point of view of the designer, it's kind of a one-shot thing, right? Because the game you play through the game, and uh, and you play it once because it's got a plot, and then and then you need to sell people the expansions. Um, it's the same, similar thing with, um, escape room games, escape room in a box, which I've, you know, I've bought many of those. They're great fun, but at the end of the, of having solved the escape room, you've destroyed it. Then you, you know, you've had a good time, you've spent 15 quid, money well spent, but if you want to play it again, you have to buy another one. Whereas, you know, the problem with Monopoly is once you've got a a game of Monopoly, the games company doesn't get anything more out of you ever again you never need to spend another penny so there's always this drive in the games industry which chris you would understand far better than i uh to try to make these games where people have to keep paying if they want to keep playing
2: that's right i mean i think gloomhaven's um to, i mean to sell gloomhaven for half a second um it's got it's got a lovely bit of card play in it this these double-sided cards where it, uh, multiple actions you take on the minute sort of that's also your health and your uh, energy and things like that so it's got a very like crunchy little puzzle in the, the combat um so that's why some people like that um rather than just rolling dice um, um but yes there is definitely, now wrong
1: with rolling dice but- i know right? it's, it's my
2: favorite thing to do is what i'd do all day if i could but uh but uh yes um Gloomhaven is interesting, again, as an example of um, a game that's begging for an expansion, because uh, it's actually a game where people went and made an entire fan expansion for it, because they weren't quick enough in this 100-hour game, or however long it takes to complete a campaign of, you know, they weren't quick enough to bring out Frosthaven the next one, which is like twice the size, you know, um, they went and made, um, the crimson scale. It's a completely fan made game where, um, the original designer, uh, Isaac Childress, um, uh, provided, um, things like game assets and art and all this sort of thing to these, um, this community of people, uh, who wanted to make this game, um, to go and create this expansion for themselves. Um, and he didn't actually get paid for that, which is quite, quite strange, but usually, yes, you're always, um, Looking for the sort of modular kind of can I sell oh, another twenty quid box on top of this? Um, I think that's 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 very that is very common in games, um, but they don't they don't start that way. That's all I'd say. I think do Gloomhaven didn't start with any cynicism in it at all, and games like that often don't. Um, I mean, and people
1: obviously you- love it, so I've got no. I'm I'm joking. I'm not criticising it. If people love the game, that's great. Um, but but yeah, I, I just observe there is an incentive um for game game designers james you will know game designers have got to make yes. a living haven't they and it's it's we not try. easy when yeah <laughs> it's not easy if you just make a, a a little game like once upon a time that's just perfect as it is and we never have needs, six or seven
0: expansions for Once Upon a yeah, time. The separate themes there's the there's the basic Spanches fairy tale are one any
1: good, are they i mean i'm sure it's different for once upon a time but i mean that this, this is always the the golden rule of um of board games i find Yes. is that you never buy the expansion no matter how much you love the game because it never makes the game any better with the exception of Once Upon a Time which of course all the times are fabulous.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm Yes, it's, I would actually say Settlers of Catan is a better game with Seafarers of Catan added into it which was, I believe that was the original design and then they had to cut it down to make it a marketable price So the seafaring stuff was taken out and became the first expansion. uh, Some years ago, and I think I'm out of the NDA so I can talk about this, I did actually pitch Hasbro on an expansion for Monopoly, using the dead space in the middle of the board. If you think about it, that's wasted real estate. So I built a couple of railway lines connecting the railway stations and added some shops and and things along the way and then I had zombies invade and it was called Zombopoly and I was really pleased with it and they didn't (laughs) go for it. I think because they might have already been working on the living dead, uh, no, the What's the word I'm looking for? What was the TV series? Oh, Walking Dead. Walking Dead, The Walking Dead Monopoly. Which again is an interesting way to take your game that's still fundamentally about property value.
3: Yeah, that's that. Monopoly always makes me laugh with that. It's like it does not matter at all what skin you put in it; they will just slap it on, and that's what it is now.
0: <laughs> yes, it, it's about how much can you pay for for this thing. Um, but yes, the expansions of games. I mean, I think something like Carcassonne has got thirty or forty expansions, including some tiny little ones that are like two or three tiles. But it does seem to be a way of keeping the game alive. And if you look at how Asmodee uh, markets a lot of its games, it's not about producing endless new games. It's about essentially taking a really good game, popular game, and turning it into a franchise, Um, you know, with minor variations or larger variations, Ticket to Ride being another one, Catan, of course, having loads and loads of of additions to it. So it is becoming, I mean, with the addition of, of money, uh, and as the market grows, it's becoming a much more money-minded market. Uh, and again, Tim, you've written for the uh, the Economist and the FT as as, as we said about this. How um, in, in as as an economic force, board games coming up these days vis-a-vis digital games, which are simply huge. Um, do does it matter? Do do people pay attention to that? Uh,
1: I mean, I. I suspect not. I haven't looked at the overall numbers, but it's you know it's a growing niche, but it's still a niche. I mean, I think you just need to ask yourself, as we're all we're all board game fans here, how much we spend on board games versus how much we spend on, say, uh, you know, streaming movies. Yes. I prefer games, not board... to think about how much we <laughs> spend on board yeah. games, to be honest. Yeah. But I mean, I, I suspect it's only. It's only ever going to be uh, a niche as far as the entertainment industry is concerned. But I'm, you know, I'm Holly and Chris would know. Well, actually, I'm the, I'm the least well qualified to 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 uh, to talk about this. So take, get me. I, I'm going to stop digging. T- tell me how how big is the board game industry? I don't know.
2: Well, it's pretty big. Um, you know, I mean, I can't remember the actual numbers on it, but one, something that struck me. The other week is I saw a press release come out that um, tracked the increase in board game marketing spend, which, you know, shouldn't be massively surprising that there is board game marketing spend, but the fact it's gone up so much says that there is um, this, ho- these ho- this whole set of peripheral roles that aren't just make the thing, put it on a shelf somewhere, you know, um, that, you know, you do have a marketing team for most board game companies. You know, now, And I think things like Kickstarter have, have really helped fund that kind of thing. Um, I spoke to quite a lot of designers who...
3: Oh, sorry. I was just going to ask a question because from a historical standpoint, actually tracing the actual kind of value and size of the board game industry is quite difficult because board games were a bit everywhere, to be honest. You can look at the kind of games and toys industry and sort of abstract certain things. But also... So I was wondering if that's true now because it's is 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 a kind of is there just like this is the board game industry or is it still kind of like oh well there's stuff in the heritage sector and oh this kind of stuff that crosses over digital so actually it's very difficult to quantify it because it's kind of a bit everywhere
1: yeah i i would have thought so i mean i I know james keeps saying i write about this for the financial times but i i I wrote about board games as a cultural phenomenon rather than as an industry and yes i would have thought some of it's some of it's Kind of craft, isn't it? Mm. And some of its, some of its in the bookshops, and some of its, yeah. I, I don't know how they how they categorise it, but I, I simply observe the the number of board game shops in, in Oxford, which is large uh, relative to most cities. But uh, I live in Oxford, but then I look at the number of bookshops in Oxford, and I think about how much is being spent uh, on restaurants, and all these other things, and I, I just think board games are are growing and thank goodness but I don't think they're ever going to be as big as say the the movie industry or the computer game industry
3: I think there's a an aspect to board games which is I guess I guess just the kind of material culture aspects we're talking about you know why would you buy a board game and not a you know play a tabletop RPG or stuff like that and I think sometimes it does come down to people like things people like stuff and things and if you give something that gives you the little models or you have something that gives you something and um I see a lot in terms of history and material culture and stuff like that is that it kind of you know you want to come up with all these really kind of high concept cultural things and often it comes down to people like stuff (laughs) and people like material objects and people really like the materiality of board games I think Chris you said before about like the kind of tactile nature and things like that and I think that's very true and you know I play sometimes play board games online you know kind of um wingspan and stuff like that have like an online version but there is just something lovely about little things and pieces and the tactility of it and the materiality of it that I think is is interesting and appealing and it's to better a lot if of
1: they're wood isn't it than if they're plastic and yeah. oh
3: yeah and there's just lots of yeah <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think there's almost there's almost a meta game to collecting board games, to collecting all the supplements for your favorite game, or having the Kickstarter version, having the exclusive version.
3: It kind of becomes its own version of house rules, in a way. It's like, oh, well, we play of this expansion, but not that expansion. We don't use that rule because that doesn't work. And so kind of talking, it's why historically board games are quite difficult to analyze, because just because you have the game doesn't mean you understand the play that happened with it. It's two very different things.
1: The sheer fact that that so few people actually play Monopoly the way Monopoly is supposed to be played, and they play it, and it's not, and it, and their rules are not an improvement; they make it worse. Is <laughs> is I think an interesting. Um, I don't know what it teaches us, but it teaches us something. Um, but there was um, uh, there was a company called Cheapass Games, and, and maybe they're still operating. But I, I remember buying quite a few of their games in the in the late nineteen nineties, and their whole thing was oh, you know, why do you need all this? Why do you need all these beautiful miniatures? You've already got them. Uh, we're going to se- send, we'll sell you a cool new set of rules and you can basically assemble the stuff you need to play this cool new set of rules from pieces and and meeples and pawns and dice that you've already got. Um, and yeah, I, I think speaking to what you just said, Holly, I, you know, people didn't seem to go for it. Maybe the games weren't good enough, but some of them were good. Uh, I think it was just, no, no, people wanted to own a beautiful thing,
0: yes. I mean, they did pretty well on their their own level. But I mean, brilliant games in there. Before I kill you, Mister Bond, in which you're attempting to everyone's a supervillain attempting to assassinate the uh, the the wily. They had to change the name of that, understandably. Um, but uh, yeah, no, fantastic ideas there. But as you say, the production values were deliberately really low, and. They were kind of a cult thing, rather than they were never a mass hit. And they've kickstarted actually full color, all singing, all dancing versions of them in the last few years. Some of the bigger hits from the '90s, and they do really well now. So I, I think you're right. A lot of it is about the the owning thing, the the having this, the the, and all the emotions that go alongside. Looking at, I mean, I have multiple editions, two editions, because there only are of a, a game called Tales of the Arabian Nights, which is a storytelling board game. I still have the first edition. I'm never going to play it again because the second edition is much better. But all my memories, or so many of my memories, are to do with that first edition. Having that object is really important to me. Which brings me on to kind of a much more personal thing, uh, because this is the last episode of the the six that we're doing. For each of you, what's a game that's really not that you'd necessarily recommend to other people, but a game that means an awful lot to you that, you know, when you think of board games, when you think of the warm emotions that you get around board games, what's one that, that, you know, you come, you know, comes to mind.
3: I think I've got one. I don't know if I want to go first. Maybe if I go yeah, if I go first then I don't have to hear a good other people's are and it'll be easier. Um, so I immediately looked over, I realised this is a podcast and not a visual <laughs> medium, so this is probably slightly pointless, but I have realised over here, I was talking about, you know, Ludo is not a good game, um, but I have my beloved uh, copy of an Edwardian Ludo board that um, I keep by my desk and is sentimental uh, purely as a something to symbolise, you know, my research and something I've dedicated years of my life to at this point.
0: Um, is, is that a Cecil Alden illustration on that
1: one?
3: i think so it's rather lovely isn't it sorry again for a podcast it's It's
0: (laughs)
1: lovely it
3: is it's great still
1: hasn't mastered the audio medium (laughs) i I know i i
0: apologize we'll put up some images beside this or, or or something
3: yeah i got it i got it for like three quid in a junk shop and i was just like i'll have that but um so that you know but that is a which is another thing which is like games don't have to be played (laughs) to be a thing as you said like I have never played this game I probably I will never play this game but it's become something else it's become a kind of you know almost like a memorial to this part of my life in terms of how many years I've spent uh, researching these things but I think in terms of actually a game that I bring up a fond memories of playing is probably Trivial Pursuit because as a kid, I I was a kid that always wanted to play board games with my family, but both my parents worked. And so we never really played board games that much, which probably says a lot psychologically about why now I spend years of my life researching them, which I'm not going to go into too much. Um, but always wanting to play Trivial Pursuit and also Trivial Pursuit being a game that I've played at different stages of my life for different reasons and always found funny in the way that because Trivial Pursuit is so dated so quickly and I remember our copy at home talks about like East Germany and things like that (laughs) so it's kind of like really and just I so I think for me Trivial Pursuit is something because kind of um I guess time-wise I have like very distinct moments of very particular Trivial Pursuit things and then the game itself being of a very particular time and so that always that always strikes me in my memory. For,
1: For me it is all about the people that I played the game with. Uh, so the, I mean, the most important games to me are role-playing games, uh, particularly GURPS, but d I mean, all of them, and I'm still playing every week with the people, some of the people I was playing with when I was 14, 15 years old. And they're some of the best friends uh, that, that I have, and we've just been been bound together by the playing of these wonderful games over and over again. And that's really what makes games worth playing, I think. So when I think about the board games, it's the same kind of memory. Uh, Settlers of Catan, I, I would play with my wife and my brother-in-law and sister-in-law who lived next door to us for a few years. And we'd, we'd play every Sunday evening uh, for, I don't know, every week for a year, uh, and then, when my wife and I moved to America, we discovered Puerto Rico, and we were playing Puerto Rico with our next door neighbor. And so, it's it's about these these bonding experiences. Um, but I, I suppose GURPS, uh, P- Puerto Rico, Settlers of Catan, and Agricola uh, they're they're not such they're not such bad games uh, with or without the right friends.
2: So for me, um, I would pick. A, I'm going to pick a newer game. And it's uh, Oath uh, by Cole, Cole, Cole Worley, which is, is sort of a abstract war game thing, but it's a non-destructive legacy game where every time a faction wins, um, you change up the the world deck that exists there and you change up the state of the board and you make a little note in a little book next to it um, to say who played and how how who won, what, what happened there. And because it's non-destructive and because it's legacy, it retains its knowledge of what it what it is. Um, it's a game that, and it's a game I played and, um, inter- uh, interviewed Cole, Cole Worley about, um, just, I think I was on paternity leave. Um, and my daughter had just been born. And so this idea struck me that I could, I could play this game with lots and lots and lots of different people, um, throughout my life. Uh, and then by the time, I, you know, by the time she's 20, Um, there'll be this big list of people in this world that'll be, uh, have been crafted by all these different people through this sort of almost a logarithm of people in her life that, um, she can then go and play and well, probably hate, but, um, but you know, she, (laughs) she, she might, she might like it. Um, and I think, I think that's the game that, uh, feels like has the most potential to create memories for me because it's a game I've sort of decided should (laughs) in the end so that's that's my that's my choice I think
3: this is why I'm so glad I went first because I knew Trivial Pursuit was going to be such a basic answer and I was like you know what I'm just going to put this outfit out there before someone says something really emotionally lovely and wonderful and I'm just like well Trivial Pursuit because I always try to get people to play it with me
0: <laughs> no it's it's I think it's great there is no such thing as a bad game every game is somebody's favorite game And um, it's about the emotions. It's about the other players. It's about what we do with the game. It's not about the game itself. And when someone says, oh, X, that's a bad game, it's (laughs) all right. There are one or two genuinely (laughs) awful games out there. But for the most part, you can turn any game into a fun experience and a memorable experience. I have have a little game called uh, Go Away Monster, uh, which I played with my kids. It's the first game I really played. A lot with my kids because they would demand to play it and it's a very simple game of drawing shapes out of a bag and if it fits on your bedroom then you put it down the bedroom but if it's a monster you shout go away monster and you throw it back into the box and the kids were really young at this point I think my youngest was two or three Um, but she loved it so much and she was afraid of monsters under her bed and this helped in a genuine way but her glee at shouting go away monster uh, lives with me to, to this day. And it's it's one of those it looks like it's gonna be hugely simplistic and tedious and I was kind of dreading going, Oh no, I'm gonna be playing this a lot. And it's actually great. It's it's just it's a very simple fun, but it's a very genuine, true fun within it.
3: I'm just going to say one very good thing about Trivial Pursuit is how incredibly humbling it is. Because I've played it with other historians, you know, people who have PhDs, people you know who are, you know, lecturers and professors, and I've never seen terror in a group of historians' eyes than when they land on a history section in Trivial Pursuit. And I think that's, uh, I think that's very humbling and important. <laughs> Sorry to ruin your lovely kind of sentimental thing there with a uh, just remembering <clears throat> the terror in the eyes of historians that brought me glee.
0: No, I think that, I think that's actually a better way of wrapping up this whole thing than I was going to do. The terror <laughs> in the eyes of historians is, as someone who was very bad at history at school, that's some, that's an image I can I can live with. This has been a fantastic journey through where games have come from, where they're going, where they are, what they are, and, and why they're there. Thank you all um, so much for you, for your time, your um, your expertise, your personal memories. Um, Holly Nielsen, Tim Harford, Chris Eggert, um I uh, keep, keep playing, keep winning. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, James. It's been a pleasure.
0: This is the Play to Win podcast from Aconite Books with me, James Wallace. This first series of the podcast accompanies my new book, Everybody Wins, Four Decades of the Greatest Board Games Ever Made, out now in the UK and coming to the US, Canada and Australia in spring 2023. As always, I'm enormously grateful that anyone really will talk to me about my pet subjects, of what games are, why they're important, where they've come from, where they're going, and why that matters, let alone guests of the calibre of Tim, Holly, and Chris, and indeed everyone who's spoken to me over the course of the six episodes of Everybody Wins. I'm quite startled by the calibre of the people who have agreed to, to discuss with me, and I'm very grateful for their contributions to games culture, and the games industry, and games themselves, over the last four or five decades. I hope you found it an interesting journey. I certainly have. There was an awful lot I didn't know. There were things I thought I knew, but was completely wrong about. And if you haven't yet seen the book, Everybody Wins, if you do, if you get a chance, then please do. It actually started off as a magazine column in Tabletop Gaming, but has progressed an awful lot from there. We edited it. We took out some of the the bits that we discovered later were wrong and put in an awful lot of bridging text and an awful lot of new research. People seem to like it. I hope you will too. Thanks very much for listening. I've been James Wallace. I still am and I hope I will be in the future.
1: I'll see you soon. This is the Play to Win podcast from Aconite
0: Books, with me, James Wallace. This first series of the podcast accompanies my new book, Everybody Wins, Four Decades of the Greatest Board Games Ever Made, out now in the UK and coming to the US, Canada and Australia in Spring 2023.